0: On May 29th, US President Donald Trump stepped out into the Rose Garden at the White House and announced that he will begin stripping Hong Kong of its special treatment under US laws with quote, few exceptions, following the State Department's report that Hong Kong no longer justifies special treatment different from the rest of China. The stunning announcement came on the back of Beijing introducing a controversial national security legislation that bypasses Hong Kong's own legislative process. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law & Practice and host of the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. With me today to discuss what Hong Kong's special trade status really means is Wendy Weisong and Ali Burney, partners at global law firm Steptoe & Johnson. Wendy is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement in the Department of Commerce, who previously represented Chinese telecom giant ZTE in their five-year multi-agency investigation in the US. Her colleague, Ali, also has extensive experience in economic sanctions and export controls, having also worked previously in Washington at the Office of Foreign Assets Control in the Department of Treasury. In this episode, Wendy and Ali delve into U.S. export controls as they relate to Hong Kong, one of the key areas of U.S. law that Hong Kong has enjoyed special treatment in over the years, as well as an area that has been at the centre of the U.S. campaign against major Chinese companies such as ZTE and Huawei. Wendy and Ali explain how Hong Kong has had access to certain technologies that the PRC does not, what the Trump administration could do to beef up its scrutiny in Hong Kong, as well as the impact on contracts and due diligence for US and Hong Kong exporters and importers. Wendy, Ali, welcome to the China Law Podcast.
1: Thank you, Vincent. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thank you. Let me start with Ali. This panic about Hong Kong losing its special trade status, you you read it everywhere, and yet many people probably don't actually know what that entails. So can you explain what it means specifically in terms of U.S. export control laws for Hong Kong to have this special treatment?
2: Yeah, thank you, Vincent. So the way U.S. export controls work, um, they impose licensing restrictions based on the destination or the end user of the export. And for purposes of U.S. export controls, mainland the People's Republic of China and the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, Hong Kong SAR, have been treated as separate regions just for the purposes of export controls. What this means is that um, at a very basic level, certain items that are controlled or require a license for export to China do not require a license for export um, to Hong Kong as long as they are not going onward to China. This doesn't cover a lot of items, but really covers those items that are controlled for national security reasons. Um, they have The control reason is national security. And those items can be exported uh, to Hong Kong with a lower level of control than they would if you were exporting them to China.
0: So when we're talking about looser controls for exports to Hong Kong in contrast with the rest of China, what sorts of industries or products are we mainly talking about here?
2: The reasons for control that are most evident are national security. And those can impact... A lot of items that we commonly refer to e- either as dual use or sensitive technologies and these can you know you've seen some of them in the case of huawei but there's other items that can have a dual military um, um as well as civilian use um engines etc ai um, all of these items um there's such a long list of them that it's not practical um to 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 go through them in each sense but there are these items and um as the US government looks at ways of um, perhaps tightening export controls what they're really thinking of is going through this laundry list of items and controls and seeing which ones they can which ones they need to um, take away so take away Hong Kong's privileges and which ones they'll continue to let Hong Kong have so for example currently there's um, they've taken away for china which is something called uh, a license exception for civilian use So that's
0: the license exemption civ this means that if certain
2: items that were controlled for national security reasons if they were um, going to china for purely civilian end use or end users there would be a lower licensing um, threshold um, for them that is um, going to be taken away for china and it remains to be seen if Right now, they're not because Hong Kong is in a different country group. Um, that continues to apply to Hong Kong and those product products can continue to come in. Assim- another item is that there's a license exception for permissible re-exports to Hong Kong. This is kind of very important for the cross-border trade between Hong Kong and China. What it did was that there were certain, once again, certain list of items, um, that could be exported to Hong Kong. And as long as Hong Kong was going to authorize them, the Hong Kong authorities were going to authorize those items to be re-exported to China. The U.S. government did not require a separate uh, export license uh, from the U.S. government for that kind of giving the authority to uh, to Hong Kong to do that. And so what they're going to do now, what they've contemplated doing is taking that away. So those controlled items, if you're going to export them to Hong Kong, and then you're going to export them from Hong Kong to the PRC, you'll need to get a license um, from the US government, from Commerce Department, instead of just relying on the license from the Hong Kong
0: authorities. Right, so this practice of re-exporting really gets to the core of Hong Kong's status as a gateway for US goods and technology to reach the PRC, as the city has looser licensing requirements for certain items than the rest of China. But under this arrangement, the Hong Kong authorities have always had to make sure that their re-exports still comply with US export controls, so that Hong Kong doesn't just become a way to smuggle controlled US items to the PRC. And historically, the U.S. has trusted Hong Kong to do this, but now it's reconsidering whether to continue this, this arrangement. Is that a good summary? That's I mean, right. They were. They. The
2: idea was that because Hong Kong issued its own licenses and its own review process, the U.S. government would give um, credence to that, or would. Um, to that licensing process. And now the idea is that the US is going to control the licensing process for exports that are actually ultimately going to be re-exported to the PRC. This
0: proposed re-export rule change, it was announced along with a couple other final rule changes, mainly targeting China, one of them being the removal of the license exception CIV you mentioned earlier, and another one targeted the Chinese military. And... All of these were announced in late April, so before the more recent developments surrounding Beijing's national security legislation as well as Pompeo's and Trump's announcements.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a very valid point that a lot of these changes as far as, um, growing trade controls and national security concerns that the U.S. authorities were voicing were independent of the situation with the national security law in Hong Kong. And the reason why Hong Kong is featured in, in the export controls is just because it is a gateway to PRC rather than specifically being targeted, um, for, for what's happening with the recent legislative process.
0: Right, right, right. And I would direct listeners to go back to an earlier episode with Amanda Debusk from Decker, where we discussed that group of new rules announced in April in more detail. And of course, none, none of them are in effect yet, so not even the finalised ones. But they do highlight the fact that Hong Kong is really just one part of a much broader campaign by the US to crack down on Chinese access to US goods and technology. So what is at stake, of course, for Hong Kong then is the special treatment given to it by the US under the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act, which says that Hong Kong has to justify this special treatment by being sufficiently autonomous from the PRC. And also, when it comes to export controls specifically, Hong Kong has to comply with US export controls. So let me bring in Wendy here, who has served previously in the US Attorney's Office as well as at BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Commerce Department overseeing export enforcement. How, how has Hong Kong fared in this regard over the years in terms of its compliance with its obligations?
1: Well, I think the U.S. and Hong Kong have a very special relationship. When I was at the Department of Commerce, we would have bilateral trade talks with Hong Kong itself and discuss, you know, their regulations, the enforcement of the regulations in the United States. We would share advice and guidance, um, help and assistance. Um, there's an export control officer who's based here in Hong Kong from the Department of Commerce. Having said all that, you know, there was, it's, it's also with an eye toward, um, what was going on its relationship with China, and as as the regulations tightened a bit with China, you know they also were at the same time the um, U.S. government was talking with Hong Kong about what the impact would be if they tighten the rules with with China. You know it doesn't escape anybody's notice the importance of the exports from the United States that come through Hong Kong and then go up. Uh, into China legitimately. I mean, 50%, 50, over 50% of Hong Kong's re-exports go to China. Uh, in contrast, uh, only 76 go to the United States. So, you know, China's a, a major, major trading partner um, with Hong Kong. So the, when we talk about Hong Kong as a sort of a transshipment hub, to to me, it's a, a very legitimate transshipment hub. hub. It's, it's very important to global commerce very important to global markets, very important access um, from China. Ali was talking about this to and from China, as well as to and from the United States. So it, it plays a very impo- important role. As far as whether or not uh, Hong Kong has lived up to the obligations and expectations, you know, I think that, that Hong Kong has as much as, you know, any country, any other country has, you know, that, that is is subject to scrutiny by the United States. You know, there's been a lot of um, visits and statements by the Treasury Department, Seattle Mandokar a couple couple years ago about making sure that um, Hong Kong companies weren't acting as front companies for uh, illegitimate diversion of um, goods, U.S. origin goods to, to um, China, you know, language along that line, you know, and warnings and things like that. But, you know, those are, uh, you know, common and, and have been voiced in, under great many administrations.
0: Are there measures um, short of completely rescinding Hong Kong's special trade status that the administration could do? And perhaps lawyers like you would recommend rather than just totally remove the, the entire special treatment?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And one of the things that I think, you know, as lawyers, we sort of marvel at is how sensitively the regulations can be tweaked to have a major impact. Um, you know, that the, uh, it can be through things as simple as what Ali was talking about, where um, you require uh, a second license, you know, that the U.S. requires an import license for its goods to come into Hong Kong and requires an export license for it to go out of Hong Kong, for those items to go out of Hong Kong before the U.S. will even ship things to Hong Kong. So it's a requirement that was, you know, talked about for years, and that was put in place well before the national security law there's been um, some recent tweakings where they just upped the licensing requirement for specific technology that was coming into Hong Kong that there was an awareness that uh, China was looking to obtain and so they amended the regulations again to just sort of tweak the regulation that was sort of why they had uh, rescinded license exception CIV that Ali was talking about because of what they called the military-civilian fusion and the fact that you can't really tell when a piece of equipment's going, you know, for a military end use or going to a civilian end use, they just said, look, we'll just require a license for all of it. And then we'll have a good idea as to where, where the items are going. But even back, back in 2016, you know, we saw more activity with regard to the entity list and what companies were being placed on the BIS entity list. We saw companies being placed on a list that doesn't get very much attention, the unverified list, where BIS can't go and verify where the products ended up. So, there's there's measures that can be taken that have been taken for years to increase the pressure on Hong Kong to make sure that it complies with U.S. regulations. And there are examples, you know, where where things have found their way up into to China, where the U.S. is surprised and the you know Hong Kong you know hadn't meant for those things to be diverted up to the PRC. And then, so there's uh, uh, messages that are sent through enforcement actions um, where items go up and they they'll take a particularly hard hard line on, on it and then publicize it, you know, to send a message. So these are all things that they have been doing for years, you know, to, to get Hong Kong and to get uh, industry and to get exporters and manufacturers and freight forwarders and those involved in the supply chain to be aware of what the U.S. regulations require and to try and convince them to go ahead and um, comply with the regulations.
0: So, so now that we have a good idea of what the U.S. has done to beef up its scrutiny on Hong Kong over the years... Let's look ahead at what the U.S. might do now on the back of Trump's announcement. Are there measures that you think the Trump administration might be more inclined to introduce? Have there been signals from the government or individual officials, for example, or signals from the previous action taken by the administration um, that might make you more convinced about a particular measure being more likely than another?
2: Well, predicting this administration is is challenging on a good day. I think... The administration has a laundry list of menus um, that it could, uh, menu-based items you could choose from. I think some of those have been mentioned, whether it is favorable trade privileges, whether some of the license exceptions that we talked about could be revoked, or they could um, fall back on what they call the entity list, which would be not targeting an entire city, but specific actors either on this side of the crossing or, or on the other side in Shenzhen. Uh, and lastly, they could just bring in more enforcement cases. So perhaps make examples of some, um, leading re-exporters, et cetera, if they felt that they had enough evidence to bring those actions. Given that the administration had announced that it was going to take action, you know, last week and yet has not, has kind of just, um, not really made any statements except some of the earlier statements that's not necessarily connected to what's happening with the national security law. It seems that even within the government there are a lot of factors that people are considering and each each decision has its own particular cases i would think with all of saying all of that as a caveat up front i would say that um ultimately the most measured response is going to be the one that they they will likely pick so uh, not something that would take away all trade privileges at the same time, Um, because if they did that, then there'd be nothing more to escalate. But something more measured, perhaps seeing the APR, what effects that has um, could be one of those measured approaches but at the same time have pretty open licensing so
0: apr refers to the proposed re-export rule change you mentioned earlier yeah
2: apr is the one for um permissive re right right
0: right right and of course the administration will also have to consider the impact of any actions on the hong kong people themselves because we're seeing many people in the city voicing concerns about how the u.s might inadvertently hurt them even some of those who welcome the u.s getting more involved So Wendy, do you think there's a risk that a Hong Kong company or re-exporter who does do legitimate re-exports of US goods and technology to mainland China might be inadvertently caught up in whatever measures the Trump administration take? Especially as these concepts, such as dual use and military-civilian fusion, are really very broad when we're talking about China.
1: Um, what they're expecting is that companies will sort of um, hone and sharpen the due diligence that they're putting on items that are going to China um, to determine, you know, whether or not it's likely that the the specific technology is is going somewhere where the U.S. is going to, you know, make them the example, the first case in in Hong Kong enforcement case. You know, the U.S. Is um, pretty understanding if it's an honest mistake. Um, we've had Ali and I recently have had a number of declinations where a company just didn't understand what the regulations were. And then once you walk the the government through a particular transaction, they recognize that you know a they didn't understand what the company was doing, and b you know that the company was understandably confused as far as what the regulations required, and then did the right thing as soon as they realized that there was an, an issue and you know mitigated and remediated, you know, everything that they were supposed to do. So I think you know, when we're talking with companies we're saying you need to increase your controls increase you know at least you know what what you're attempting to do if you get it wrong you know then you get it wrong and we'll we'll, we'll help you walk it back um but they're definitely trying to increase pressure and you see the regulations they're always sort of like a, they don't come into immediate effect not all of them but some of them you know they have a savings clause you know and so that they're leaving themselves lots of room to to ratchet things up if they feel like they need to in, in drafting these regulations and the 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 cases that we look at, you know, 90% of the cases where the U.S. government really seeks to enforce the the laws is when, you know, somebody turned a blind eye to an obvious red flag.
2: Yeah, it's it's the willful blindness kind of um, idea that they target. Of course, they target the person that's actually doing it, but beyond that,
0: it's the willful blindness. How might all of this then affect contractual negotiations between American exporters and Hong Kong importers then?
2: Like, I mean, for example, if the APR, what will happen in practice? If the, if the U.S. exporter is now burdened with getting the license, they're going to push down a lot more contractual obligations and promises on the Hong Kong importer slash re-exporter who could previously Perhaps rely on the fact that listen, I, I got a Hong Kong export license, so I've done my part. Now that those obligation contractual obligations may actually be more because they be simply more than just you will not break any law to going beyond and you'll maintain adequate policies, procedures, and controls to make sure that you don't unwittingly uh, breach any law. So I think you could see some some more of that kind of um, requirements being pushed down.
0: So we we can expect to see American exporters placing all of these additional burdens of these rule changes on Hong kong importers slash re-exporters
2: so how it works in practice is that um, a lot of times whoever has the more bargaining power right if if, if i'm the u.s exporter mm-hmm. and you really i'm the only one that makes this i'm i i mostly mm-hmm. can push down a lot more mm-hmm. of my requirements to the distributor um but if the tables are turned then it's a balancing act but most u.s exporters at a minimum are required to do what is called red flag due diligence and kyc due diligence so they they even they cannot just shift the burden by contract alone if just because they get the Hong Kong distributor to agree to terms if they haven't done their due diligence on the Hong Kong distributor to um, to the standard required under the regulations, they'll um, they could themselves get in trouble. And similarly, it goes on and onward. So the Hong Kong um, the Hong Kong reseller or re-exporter will mostly have to do a similar kind of due diligence or comfort level on its um, Chinese or PRC end user. Problem being is that the Hong Kong re-exporter must release in the, the weakest position of all three parties in the transaction, right?
0: So we've talked about due diligence and contractual clauses, and so we've touched on some of the this last question that I wanted to ask about, which is about what specific advice a major global firm like Steptoe would give to businesses during this pretty uncertain time, where it is possible that we won't see what the Trump administration might do for the next few weeks or even months. And so if I'm an importer slash re-exporter of US origin items here in Hong Kong, is this just an impossible time to do business? And, you know, I shouldn't make new orders and make new deals. Or is it the case that if I'm smart enough and have good enough advice that I can navigate through this period?
1: Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that's where we land is that, you know, a company needs to decide what its risk appetite is. Um, you know, there's great opportunities uh, here if you want to take advantage of, of the situation. But if you do it, you need to get your house in order. You need to make sure that you've got strong enough export compliance programs, good informed export compliance advisors, whether or not they're in-house or external. Making sure that you know you've got everybody lined up that understands the risks and then how those risks are going to be mitigated. But it's you know a great opportunity. Obviously, you know there'll come a point where the U.S. and China uh, will need to normalize their trade relationship, um, build on you know what we're you know what's been accomplished during this period of turmoil, and then and then move on. And the companies that take advantage of of this time in terms of Getting their house in order in terms of building strong compliance programs and a good compliance mindset are going to be the ones that have the advantage um, because they're not going to be the ones that that get themselves in trouble and have the supply chain disrupted. And you know they can continue to be relied on as um, good business partners in the in the supply chain.
0: You both have good contacts in the current administration, having both previously worked in government, and you have calls and meetings with the current officials overseeing the changes we've been discussing. So how receptive have they been to your feedback on behalf of your clients?
1: One of the things that that I've always been struck with um, from the time I was at the Department of Commerce and, and continuing forward, and I don't think that this has changed at all, is how open and receptive they are to input from industry. And they have very formalized mechanisms for uh, providing that. And so, you know, we've provided input on behalf of our clients, um, you know, on a no-name basis. We've um, aggregated input and provided it. Um, lawyers have gotten together and provided input on various regulations. And then they also listen when. Um, industry, uh, representatives will come in and say, look, there's a weakness here. There's, there's a problem with the way that this regulation is working in practice. And, you know, and we're, we're not playing on a, a, a level playing field because, you know, we're trying to comply with the spirit. But there's a problem with the way the regulation is being interpreted, and so you know they'll they'll listen to that kind of input too, with some very technical input. Sorry
0: to interrupt, but did Hong Kong used to be one of those concerns that U.S. exporters might have raised with the Commerce Department, where, for example, they would be punished if a Hong Kong re-exporter diverted the product to the PRC without the U.S. exporter knowing about it?
1: Well, it's 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 not in in the way that you just portrayed it. What, what happens is that in, say, an enforcement case, um, where there's a particular party that a case is being built against, the Department of Commerce will, will listen to information that that target of an investigation is going, is supplying with regard to what its competitors are doing. So that's, that's a source of information that would probably um, be closer to what you're talking about, as opposed to just um, folks in Hong Kong, you know, saying, wait a second, there's a loophole in the law. You know, that's that's not going to be how the, that information would come about. You know, so you get competitor tips, um, you get tips that come through enforcement in um, where, where there's weaknesses and, and that type of thing. Whether or not Hong Kong, you know, was, was raised as a, as a particular problem, I don't recall ever hearing that, you know, other than, um, you know, there's folks in various China study groups that will raise transshipment as a particular issue. So it might come up in that in that respect. But it's it's not generally that Hong Kong was was raised in a negative uh, way in that regard that I I can recall.
0: Ali, any advice or for US exporters or Hong Kong importers slash reexporters during this very uncertain time? Yeah, I mean, I
2: think the future is going to be more regulation.
0: And there are going to be two kinds of
2: companies. One of those initially others that can gear up and understand their risk and have an understanding of compliance that meets that risk. And those that don't understand it, then they're going to try and go forward just as as business as usual. And those will find themselves at the sharp end of an enforcement state with, without the protection um, and mostly being designated or targeted. So I think companies should get ready for more compliance whether it's because of the regulations pushed push by the U.S. or whether it's contra- contractual commitments from their U.S. suppliers. Either way they'll they'll need to be ready for it.
0: And what about a well-drafted force majeure clause? Might that be a good idea to hedge your risks?
2: Yeah I mean I think having advice on clauses and when, when things have gone wrong very frequently those kind of things come to us and it's sanctions. It's very hard to get your money out once once the regulations are put in place you know. So have something like if you're saying oh if I in an order Mm -hmm. from the US and tomorrow there's a new regulation can I get my money back or can I still get the order I think that if the regulations say no you can't and the regulations say no you can't accept money from Mm -hmm. from the party then the contract is not going to help you do that right the contract cannot override u.s regulations right and there's
1: plenty of examples of that situation where there's huge investments in a particular contract um you know a big project and within with no notice the company gets you know the counterparty gets designated and here's this company that thought it had all of the contractual protections and they'll go to you know commerce department or state or OFAC or whoever, and say, wait a second, we've invested all this money, you know, and now you've designated, we are we are out of luck, we're going to lose all this money that we've invested, you know, because we had no idea you we were going to do that. And the United States says, well, you got three weeks to unwind, we don't care. A lot of examples of, of that happening, particularly with regard to the Russia sanctions. Yes.
2: Yeah, and even with export controls where they're not as draconian as sanctions, they may give a certain leeway for a few, you know, items already ordered by the the state, but a lot of these contracts, if you look into it, they're year long contracts, there's multi-inventory in- contracts, all kinds of permutations where it's not just for the next three weeks that you order, but commitments have been made a lot longer term. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty draconian in that sense. I think the best you can do is make sure your contracts have in place that if, if there's a position that makes it uh, untenable for you to do business with your counterparty, you can withdraw from the contract without any penalties. Uh, like, you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah,
1: that would very much depend on your bargaining yeah. position. Yeah. No.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Wendy, Ali, both so much for joining me today and for allowing us to record in your beautiful new office here in Hong Kong. Thank you, And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Make sure to check out our website, ChinaLawAndPractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest US-China legal and business news through our in-depth analyses, including contributions from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. Trials are available, so do get in touch if you'd like one. We're having a break, so we won't have an episode next week. We'll be back the week after that. Stay tuned, and thanks again for listening.